As many of you guys know, um, our pastor, Jeremiah Smith, is out on sabbatical for the month of July, and so we've been having guest speakers come in and fill in. And this morning, we have Chris Walls. Why don't you come on up, Chris? And Chris is going to bring us uh, the message, the Word of God, this morning. So would you join me in welcoming Chris Walls? Good morning. I just want to bring your attention before Matt leaves too far off of the stage that we are dressed near identical today, as he demanded. No. Um, you know, our youngest daughter, uh, Lily, always wants to uh, dress like her oldest daughter, Emma, and she hates that. So Lily devised a successful plan one Sunday morning to church where she wore a, uh, a, a ghost outfit, an outfit on top of her clothes. They didn't look anything like her sister's outfit, but right when we pulled into the parking lot, she unrobed her shell outfit to show that they were wearing the identical, the exact same outfit. So I didn't do that to uh, Matt, but um, Jeremiah um, asked me to speak and when he asked uh, just the group of us this month um, what it, that we would like to speak on, and I said, uh, John 15. And uh, he looked at me uh, with a look that I recognized my mom had always given me and just asked all of it. And I felt a tinge of guilt, regret, because it wasn't till then in my whole life I had realized finally what my mom meant when she asked that question, that what she was really saying was, dummy, don't do it. So I cut it in half, um, but it is still a lot. And it is intimidating because it really is high point of Scripture. And I would just confess at the beginning before we begin that there certainly is uh, too much to farm uh, in the short period of time. And um, so... Uh, just prayerfully uh, considering what it is that he would have for us today, just in the short time that we have through John 15. So if you would, turn to John 15, and we would go over uh, the first 17 verses, not all of it. But uh, we, My family, um, we like to camp, and it wasn't always that way. Um, I had grown up camping, but um, in the Army, the first time that it really got real for me that I was in the Army is when I was in Korea and we didn't stay at an army base we stayed at a Korean army base close to the DMZ and uh, we stayed in a tent and everything was in a tent so uh, you took a shower in a tent you slept in a tent every morning 12 to 20 of your closest friends would line up facing the same direction and you could see each other and you're sitting down doing what you do in the morning in the tent uh, and it was um, you know, it was a little eye-opening of an experience for me. Close to the DMZ where we were, uh, you could see uh, there was a village in the north. And part of the agreement from the uh, ceasefire from the Korean War was that each side, the north and the south, that area is in the news now, there was a, uh, an agreement that each side could have a settlement. And on the south, there was an existing uh, settlement of a rural rice uh, growing community, you know, with huts and a rural way of life. And the north built a brand new, uh, sprawling, 
200 family community, multi-story with uh, brightly colored tile roofs, and there was a uh, community center, there's a hospital, there's um, child care, school, um, and there's a speaker that was blasting at the time. They've since uh, agreed to knock it off. But there was a speaker that's blasting, just bestowing this way of life, this awesome communal way of life. At the time, it's the largest flagpole in the world there, just pointing towards the south to say, that this is a uh, superior way of life. If you go there now, you can still see it. And one of the things that you notice if you have uh, binoculars or they have the little viewing stations is, is that if you look up close, you can see that some of the doors uh, are fake. They're painted on. Some of the windows, there's no glass. It just goes right through. Um, at the time, it had electricity, which was a big deal. But if you looked at the way the lights shine through the lights, they would have a multi-floor building and there would be no uh, walls, no ceilings, no floors. Uh, it was fake. It was meant to put on of a superior way of life that didn't exist. Um, and me and my wife also uh, saved as an adult. Um, not growing up in the church is something that just I related to uh, that scene. That uh, one of the things... Um, that at least I felt the pressure of as, as, as coming to Christ as an adult um, was just the need to kind of catch up to speed quick, to kind of assimilate into the culture that you're coming into, um, to kind of uh, get up to speed. I can kind of, I, I don't know why it was so uh, monumental, but I can remember the first time that I walked into a Mardell's. And I kind of walk in and, is this cool? We can be here. And uh, it's just a different... Uh, you know, my life was changed, but I was learning at the time what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And I had begun to uh, unnecessarily uh, trap myself because I was building this structure um, because I thought that's what um, it is that, you know, you do um, as a part of the church. But um, it had, what I was trying to build was just a shell of what I actually was. And, um, you know, from the South, uh, looking into North Korea... That you can't really, um, you can see that it's fake, but the tragedy I would imagine would be the side that we can't see uh, on the north, looking is that you can see, looking through the shell, seeing that it's fake. And that's really what I wanted to talk, and I feel like John 15 talks to us about today, is looking on the other side of that. And what do we do? How do we get out? And I think Jesus shows us that our answer is the same way that we came to Christ is so we walk in him, so we abide in what that means. So if you will, turn with me, John 15, and uh, we're going to read. It's a lot, the first 17 verses, but let's read it. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the world word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so, whatever, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So, if you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, it is in a, 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 a very large sense intimidating to um, approach such uh, holy scripture that I can't even imagine uh, the generations of hearts that have been changed, that have come to this in times of need, that have found you here in these words. God, help us to see your truth, that you are life, that we can come to you, that we can remain in you. I ask for your presence here. I pray that you would just give us a moment of availability to hear the words that you've given us. Be with us now. Please, Jesus. Amen. So, it is a lot. I kind of feel like um, you get to go through your favorite buffet and you only get a tea saucer to walk through it with. So what I thought we might do is let's walk through it all together and then there's four things that I think that we can pick out today um, that it, I'm hope it's speaking to us. So just at first, just to walk through it all today, um, a little bit of a background. This is a part of a larger portion of John to where he is preparing his followers that this, uh, this, these people that he's walked with and poured himself into for the, for, for the last three years, that there's a new uh, phase of relationship, of community that he's offering them, that no longer will he be uh, with them day to day alongside of him, that, but that he will be with him in a greater way, in him, in them. So he's preparing them for this, and this is the last of the famous uh, I am sayings that you hear in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way. I am the door. I am the light. I am the uh, door. I am the, I am the uh, good shepherd. And then the last one, uh, this one, I am the true vine. And they would have recognized this weight of this I am, these Jewish listeners, if you would look at Exodus 3, when Moses is at the burning bush and he asks, who should I tell Israel uh, that's sending me? And he tells them, I am. So he's saying something. He's not saying nothing to them. And he's telling them that I am the true vine. And they would recognize, too, that he's saying that I am the true vine and that they would hear that and know that Israel, in the Old Testament imagery, was the vine. You see places like uh, Psalm 80 that I, I brought you out of Egypt. 
you're a vine. I made a place for you. And then you, uh, the insects and the boars have come to eat you. Or Jeremiah 2, uh, it says that uh, I've made you a vine and uh, you've, tur- you've shriveled up. Or in, um, there's a famous uh, poem, song in Isaiah 7 that says, uh, I planted you as a vine to plant good fruit, but you've just, plant- you've just grown bad fruit. So this is Jesus' plan. This is what he's going to tell them, that what he's come to do is the true vine to grow good fruit, is he's going to grow this fruit through them. And he's going to grow it through character. We see in Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to grow it through their relationship to each other as they love believers. And he's going to grow it through the fulfillment of places that you see in prophecy in Habakkuk 2.14 where he says that, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And how he's going to fulfill that is through these followers. This band of small group of people, this is what he's going to use to fulfill that prophecy. So, it says also, it says we can't do anything unless we abide. And I had never really, when I, I don't know why I, for some reason, had a hard time. I remember doing a Bible study on this. Uh, when I first came a believer and I asked the question with the group, what does abide mean? And the whole group universally at the same time said remain. And that's, I found out that's what everyone, most other translations say is remain. But it's also dwell. I think that's what the title on your thing says is dwell. And if you look at John 14.2, uh, John 14.23, where he says that he's preparing a house. Or, and that the Father wants to, and Jesus is coming to make their home with him. That's the verb of that word. Uh, He wants to house with them, to home with them, to dwell with them. If you follow down through, he says that everyone that bears fruit, he will prune. That word uh, prune could be cleaning or cutting or even um, as lifting something up off the ground. As a vine, you would lift up off the ground. And I didn't know that this was even something that you do. Our kids made a uh, bucket list this summer. And surprisingly, they've been brutally efficient at going through the bucket list. And Lily's list was to make a garden, so she made a garden. And we're learning that that is a thing. You prune stuff. So, uh, And then the hard thing, the thing that really honestly you're tempted to pass over, uh, I am. And the chilling thing that he tells us is, as if we do not remain in me, we're thrown into the fire and burned. And there's an old, old English poet uh, cleric that uh, talking about this verse uh, describes the answer this way. He says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, yes. But what must it be to fall out of his hands? He asks. To be ignored and let alone as past hope of amendment, as no longer worth bothering about. To be secluded eternally, eternally, eternally from the sight of God. So we see it's painful and it's weird when we see things like this, 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 this fearfulness of what God would do, he shows us the alternative. There's a great um, book C.S. Lewis wrote called The Great Divorce. It's been a long time since I've read it, but the best I can understand is he's take, there's a tour bus of people that are in hell and they're taking a field trip to heaven and one by one, they get back on the bus. They don't want to be there. And he says in the book that there's two uh, things that we can say. 
we can say to God, Thy will be done, which is the people in heaven, or we can say like the ones, or he can say to us like the ones that get back on the bus that really want, uh, God says, Thy will be done. And they one by one choose that they would have their own will be done. So as fearful as it is to when we read passages like this of, of judgment and fire and pruning and cutting, um, I, the alternative uh, where he just says, okay, I'll leave you alone is the real fear. So he tells us that if we remain in him, verse 7, ask whatever we wish and it will be done for him. And that that's, that's to his Father's glory that we bear fruit. And that's how the world will know that we're his disciples, that if we bear this fruit. And he leaves for a time this uh, imagery of the vine and to tell us that uh, he loves us. He says in verse 9, uh, he loves us as the Father loved us. He loves us as the Father loved Jesus from eternity. Perfect. Actual essence, the, the wellspring, the origin of what is love, how the Father loves Jesus, is how he chooses to describe his love for us. And he says he keeps his Father's commands, and he says if we love him, we'll keep his Father's, we'll keep his commands. And what are his commands? He says his commands are to love each other. And he says, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but I call you friends now. And he says, you didn't cho choose me, verse 16, but I chose you. In the ESV it says that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And he hints at this plan to uh, fulfill Habakkuk 2.14. That that's how the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the face of the earth as those that know him will bear fruit and that their fruit will abide. And that they would see disciples that make disciples that make disciples. So, he tells them in John 14.12 right before he goes, you will do even greater works than these because he is going to the Father. And this is how he's going to do these greater things, this abiding relationship, this new plan that Jesus has, that he's had for all time, this new experience that they're going to have to, with Jesus that will change the face of the world. So as we look at this relationship, uh, four things briefly, if we could just point out that life in Jesus is salvation. Life from Jesus is fruit bearing. Life with Jesus is is fellowship, and life for Jesus is service. So if you look first, verse 3, he says, already you are clean. So before he goes any further, before he talks about his plan to save the world, his plan to use them, he wants them to know one thing, and he wants them to settle one thing, already you are clean. He says, you are clean because of me. He tells them in this upside down kingdom in chapter 13, right before when he's preparing them for this, he uh, does the unthinkable and he takes himself from the position of their master and he washes their feet. He does something that even a Jewish slave wouldn't do. And as he's washing their feet, Peter tells them, not me. And he says, if you don't allow this, then you have no part in me. And he says, well, then wash my whole body. And he says, no, already you are clean. He wants him to know. So as you go out and you feel beat up and you feel like I've made a mess, he wants you to know already you are clean. The same sacrifice that 
in the same words that he declared to his followers that made him clean. He's telling Peter that you can come to me, that I can come and I can wash off the dirt from the journey, but he wants him to know that already you are clean. So he's telling them right then, first off, there's only two distinctions when Jesus returns that he'll make between the sheep and the goats, those that are clean and those that aren't. And he won't determine that based on race, social standing, uh, class, nationality. He's only going to determine that on those that have said, take me, Jesus. I give you my life. I receive yours. I make you my king. Those are the ones that are clean. Those are the ones that he's talking to. Those are the ones that have received his gift. So first off, before he says, of all these things that I want and all of these things I have plans for you, already you are clean. And that's the thing he wants us to settle first. That there's no need to continue further if we can't say, already we are clean. And there's nothing in our, uh, as blessed as some of us to have, to have great uh, family backgrounds, um, to have great relationships, to have great associations of those that are uh, have walked long in the faith, he says, that won't save you. Only, there's no grandchildren in my kingdom. He wants a relationship with you. And he tells you, already you are clean if you've accepted that. And there's no, uh, nothing else but that moment, that personal relationship with him, that will uh, make the biggest difference in life for us. That's what he wants us to say. So, he says, if you have, if you're clean, declare it. That's what he declares to us. If you're beat up, if you're heartbroken, if we feel not worthy, if we feel that we can't abide, remain because of some guilt that we're holding on to ourselves, uh, that keep us to bear fruit, he says, preach that message to yourself. It's funny, in the Old Testament, every time that there's a, a significant encounter with God through his people, they build an altar. They build an altar. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel. They build an altar to remember him. At the Lord's Supper, he says, remember him. Remember that you are clean. Someone said to go deeper into the gospel is to remember that anew, to start afresh, to tell that to ourselves. Your moment of salvation, that moment that you gave him all of your sin, that you received all of your righteousness, that's the biggest message, the biggest sermon that we could ever give to ourselves, is to tell ourselves today and continually that we are clean. Believing that I am clean. Saying it right now to ourselves, I am clean. So let's do it. If you can say it, let's say it out loud together. Say, I am clean. That's the best message that he has for us that we can say to ourselves that I am clean. So he wants us to know that we can't do anything to add to that before we go any further. There's nothing that we can do to add to his record and there's no chance that we have for our record to ever measure up to his. So he's giving us a chance to put up the white flag, to give it up, to rest secure in the fact that he tells you today for eternity that you are clean. So... The second thing that he tells you after he says, I love you, you're clean, I accept you. He says, life from Jesus is fruit bearing. 
And no one, we talked last week, I think Brian, um, something that I took away when we heard him speak is that really um, that's a universal thing, I feel like, certainly as you get older, that no one doesn't want to leave an impact. No one wouldn't want to do great things for Jesus. Um, we all walk with this desire to do something awesome for God. And that's what he's talking to believers here. And he says, uh, apart from intimate, moment-to-moment connection with me, as you remain in me, apart from that, you can do nothing. And here's what seems to be the key. Here's what seems to be the answer of why he would bring such a ragtag group of followers with him that are going to fulfill this mission. He tells Peter, he says, the whole group in chapter 13 in John, he says, hey, every one of you guys are going to fail me. But when you do, pick yourself back up, meet me in Galilee, and I'll tell you what we're going to do. And Jesus, or Peter says, they may all fail you. Every one of them might fail you, but not me. And Jesus tells Peter, he goes, you're going to fail me three times tonight. And it's this message that he doesn't use those followers. Every one of them that night deserted him. Every one of them that night let him down. He's not using those people in spite of them. He's using them because of that. He's using them because of their failures. He's using them because of their vulnerability when you've gotten to the point that I can't. And if there's one thing I know for certain when you're in a group of followers of Jesus that we have in common is that there's all been a time when we've been on our face and say, I can't. I've failed. You do it. That's when he can use someone. So, he's telling them, I'm going to the grave. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to create this brand new type of humanity filled with the Holy Spirit and having the power of God inside of you. And no one will see me. They're going to see you. And you bunch of knuckleheads are going to change the world. All you have to do is trust in me, he says. But to get filled with him, we need empty. That's what we have all in common that we can look at each other and should appreciate is that we've all been empty and filled with him. So what is the fruit? What does he do? What is it when he says bear much fruit? What is this fruit? And how do we get it? It's the fruit that we get naturally from abiding in him. And he says something that at first read sounds amazing when he tells us that. Ask in verse 7, ask whatever you wish and, 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 and we will have it. But it's his fruit that we get. We don't get to say, Jesus, let's grow some bananas. That's not his fruit. We get to uh, ask for and receive the fruit that he gives us. Another thing we see is that fruit is no use to the plant. If fruit stays on the vine, it just rots. He says in John chapter 12, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it's only a single seed. It's when it falls and dies to the ground that it produces many seeds. We see that fruit is not for us. The leaves are for us. The leaves are what keep us healthy. And he says, don't focus on that. Don't focus on more leaves. Let me focus on the leaves. You focus on the fruit. And I feel like this is something that traps us. This is something I feel like uh, when I feel despondent, depressed, unworthy, I just need to be fed. I need leaves. And he says, leave it be. I didn't mean to make that pun. The f- you focus on the fruit. 
Let me take the care of the he's care of the leaves. He says to, he promises at the beginning he may even cut the leaves that maybe that we're even too leafy. That what's wrong with us is not is that we need to focus more on ourselves, but that we need to focus less on ourselves. He says the fulfillment of the law is that you stop this inward slant, this navel gazing, and you love someone else. You love others. You live outside of yourself. You focus on the fruit. You focus on the giving it away. Don't take yourself out of the fight. There's a movie that I hope more than four people have seen outside of my family, Despicable Me Too. And if you've never seen it, at least hopefully you've seen the little yellow minions. If you haven't seen that, at least you know what a minion is. Someone that does the bidding of uh, the master they have. So Despicable Me 2 is my favorite, maybe because the villain's name is El Macho. But El Macho has a pretty awesome plan to defeat Gru, the protagonist. One by one, he starts stealing the minions. And he doesn't put them in a prison. He didn't put them in a dark hole. He doesn't lock them away. You find one by one, he's stealing these minions, and they're waking up, and guess where they are? They're in paradise. They're on a beach. It's called Minion Beach. They love it. Everything they could ever imagine is there. They're having the time of their life. They've been taken out of the fight. They get to focus on themselves. They don't even realize it. So Gru looks around, and he's looking for his minions, and he finds that there's no one else left. And they're not even trying to rescue themselves. They don't, they don't even realize it. They've been taken out of the fight and they don't even realize it. I feel like that's what we do when we focus on leaves. Ourselves. Let him do it. Focus on fruit. The crazy thing is, I even uh, asked Jeremiah about this and he says, wait, tell me this again. So, uh, if you're going to go tell Jeremiah on me, I already told him what I'm about to say. But something you can see, uh, almost between the verses um, is that I, I hope is there that I prayfully uh, present is that he says you can do nothing without me that you can bear no fruit without me but in this world he's somehow the crazy thing is is he's created it so that after he left he can do nothing without us He's somehow God on high, limiting himself through his followers. Choosing to fill us with the sap from the vine to be the blessing to the world. Somehow, he's choosing us to be the work that we see. Somehow, we're his plan A. Somehow, at some point in your life, you've been affected by Jesus and it was through someone else bearing fruit into your life. There's people's lives that we know at our work, in our neighborhood, in our family, in our relationship, whose literal lives are dependent upon our abiding to Jesus. He says that apart from me, you can do nothing. And he's choosing today to limit himself somehow that apart from us, he's doing nothing. He's using us. But the thing is, is that when we abide, when we bear his fruit, they don't see us. That's when they do see Jesus. So we are Jesus to where we walk. We are Jesus to, there is someone in your life that you are Jesus to. The third thing he says is that life with Jesus is fellowship. 
Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And the crazy thing is Jesus is trying to captivate our heart. The difference between a religion, a way of life, being good, going to heaven, being respectful, is that the God of the universe somehow wants a relationship with you to be your friend. I had the opportunity recently to share with a room full of young uh, Hindu background believers and uh, it was the first time, I hope maybe it wasn't, it was the first time I was aware of it, where after I closed the door, uh, they literally laughed me out of the room. Vocal laughter closed the door after I left trying to share uh, a story of Jesus. And the only difference um, is that this time I really, um, we had a, uh, I, I think we had a good relationship. And one of the things that they all brought, brought up is that uh, we can't know God. Who can know? You know? And I said, I do know God. But he's my friend. And I told him how that he is my friend. And I think they rightfully, without the power of the Spirit, thought that was the craziest thing they had ever heard. But that's what he tells us. That the God of the universe comes down and he says, I'm your friend. It's hard for us to get. It's hard when we don't feel uh, worthy. It's hard to understand when Jesus finds us irresistible, us, that he finds something so lovable in us that he literally gives his life for us. It's hard to realize that he had to have been a master of language, he's Jesus, and he can't find another way to explain the love that he has for us other than to compare it exactly to as the love the Father has for him. That's how he loves us. That's what he wants us to know. Is don't pursue the leaves, we said, but don't pursue the fruit either. That's the difference between a religion is pursue Jesus. Don't build that fake house, those fake, that fake structure at the beginning from the outside. We have this idea that we can come to Jesus and Tidy us up. Make me this. Do this. And then once we invite Jesus in, he's kicking out doors and he's knocking out ceilings and he's putting up pillars and it hurts and he's moving us over here and he's changing everything and this is not what I wanted. He's building a palace. Why is he building a palace? Because he's coming to live in it. That's us. That's what he's coming to do is a relationship with us, is he's coming to live inside of us. He calls us his friend. A friend is one who's willing to spend oneself for the other, who doesn't keep score, who doesn't count it too great of a cost to give his very life to save his friend. You've heard the joke that the biggest miracle that Jesus ever did was that he had 12 adult friends, male friends. I can relate to that. It's uncomfortable to open up my heart to people now. That's the invitation that he asks us. That's the relationship he wants with us. He opened his heart. And to practice friendship, we must open ourselves to each other and to him to see right and know who we really are. It is intimate. It is different than a religion. It is different than being a good boy or girl. That's what he invites us into. What do we do with a friend? How do we grow a friendship? We talk to him. That's what he wants. We can talk to him. We can talk to him in our prayers. 
My prayers at times seem so lifeless and wooden and repetitive and small compared to the eternal things he asks us to pray. The, the answers that he wants to give us. I don't affect much of anything because I just come to him wooden and sullen and just say the same stale impersonal words when that's not what he's inviting us into. As an intimate friend, we go bored with prayer, with the time to be in his presence, and we quickly run out of things to say. That's the f- strangest phenomenon is if I just sit out and say, I'm going to pray for the next 10 minutes. It's like longer than a treadmill. To just pray for him for 10 minutes at times seems so difficult when we should be opening up and talking to him like we do a friend. I have a friend that I don't see very much, and, uh, but when I do, they say that we do start developing real genuine friendships when we get a certain age. But this is someone that I grew up with. We don't ever hardly see each other. He's not a believer. But when we see each other, uh, we don't search for things to say. We just talk. It's natural. There's something so lifting, so light, when you can utterly be yourself with someone. And that's what Jesus asks for us in prayer. He knows you. He knows that you're worse than you even think you are. But he asks us to come to him with that openness, to talk to him as you would talk to that close friend. He doesn't want us to come to him and just to receive uh, our, 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 our uh, answers to our small prayers. He wants us to stay and to remain with him. You remember the story in the Old Testament where God gives uh, the bread daily to his followers in the desert, but he says one thing, don't take two days. On the Sabbath, take two days, but every day, only take one day. Why? Because he wants us here, daily, dependent on him. Jesus comes to give us that relationship in a way that's full of love and as a friend. And the last thing is, life for Jesus is service. Verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And in uh, the ESV, like I says, it says that you're, you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We will, followers of Jesus, will complete the good work. We will complete the vision of Habakkuk 2.14. That the whole world will know of him. We're his plan A. He tells us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 how he's going to accomplish it through normal people like me and you. It's not an idle privilege, this relationship that we have. We have been called to a solemn task to complete the good work. It is our responsibility today to live and be sent on mission. He says in the parable of the talents, just briefly, uh, are the bags of money. He gives five bags, two bags, one bag. The guy with five, he says, hey, I went out and I made five more. And he tells him, enter into the joy, just like at the beginning, enter into the joy of your master. The guy with two, hey, Jesus, or hey, Matt, you know, you, I gave you two bags and I went out and I earned two more. Enter into my joy. And the guy with one bag says, I respect you, I honor you, I know that you're a hard man, so I took what you gave me and I just buried it. And I just waited until you came back. 
I didn't do anything with it. But I kept it. I kept it safe. And he says, away from me. Wicked. Go and bear fruit and multiply. He chose you. He chose us to give our lives to him. And he gives our lives to us. But he did it for a purpose. That we can leverage our lives to give glory to him. To make him famous. What can we do to leverage our lives to make him famous? I get hung up with the idea of spoiling or I've, I've made a mess or I'm a failure or this isn't for me. You don't know what I've done. He says, yes, I do. You're worse than, I, well, you're worse than you can imagine, but now you're finally maybe in a spot where I can use you. That's always his pattern is using those that are uh, least likely to make the biggest impact. He says, without me, you can do nothing, but with me, this is what we can do. Believe what he says that we are. There's a picture from the 80s, Oral Hershiser, whose nickname was uh, Bulldog. And the manager that gave him that name, Tommy Lasorda, said that uh, when I met him, he was kind of a wimpy, kind of face down, shy, kind of intimidated kid. And he just said, said on that day when he came up, he says, you're Bulldog. And he called him Bulldog for the rest of his career. And he grew into that persona. And he was the Bulldog. And he was a fighter. And he would throw inside. And he was a bad dude. Because he believed who his manager said he was. How much greater should we believe who Jesus says we are? That you're his ambassador. That he looked at you and says, here's one I want to represent me. Here's the one I want to go into darkness to tell others who I'm like. This is the one I choose. This is my woman. This is my man. This is who I want to be my representative. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, he's looking at a room just like this. He says, look around. All you followers, look. You're not the best and the brightest. Look what he chose. He says, but look what a room full of those people that realize who he called, what he's going to do, who he uses. There's nothing more consistent in Scripture than God using the one that he'd least, we would least expect. Jesus' lineage, if you read that, is uh, if you read the people, just say Matthew or Luke. If you read and follow through those names and go find out the lives that they live, he's not, follow, he's not sweeping those people under the rug. That's who he's using. That's who's leading up to Jesus. The people with sordid backgrounds, the people that have made mistakes, the people that have run afoul, the people that have, uh, come without hope, look what he uses. Give it to him. If we think we have nothing else, nothing to give to him, then we're in pretty good shape. So just give that to him. When he left, that's what he gave, he gave his followers uh, in the text, and that's what he gives us today to do. It says, John 17, 18, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. The greatest thing someone says that we can do is we can talk to Jesus about people, and we can talk to people about Jesus. That's our task here today. So that's the invitation.
wherever you are. That's my way out from this passage of behind that structure that was not genuine. That feeling of not being able to show who I really am to those that should, I should, my brothers and sisters. That's my uh, path with Jesus is to abide in him, to remain in him moment to moment, to take my failures only as proof to see that without him I can't do anything. But he asks us anew every day that he's willing, the God of the universe, to wash our feet and to say, remain in me. And that can only happen if we are clean. So that's the first invitation to us. He says, if you are clean, or he goes, as we are clean in him. But if we are clean, we can give it to him. We can rest. But if we've never done that, I want to invite that, you to have that chance now. That we can give it to him. We can lay it down. You can settle it today. We don't have to rely on our good works, our lack thereof, uh, our mom and dad, the church that we belong to, uh, the relationships that we have, uh, the thoughts that I must be Christian. You know, in the army they tell you, uh, what are you? And you got to put on your dog tag. And I wrote, uh, Christian. I'm not Buddhist. I wasn't a Muslim. I wrote Christian. And I couldn't have been further from a relationship with Christ. That's what he asks you. Not an identity to say, oh, I, I must be Christian. I live here. I'm here today. He's asking you into a relationship with him that will change your life forever. That he can use you and grow you. And that he can do magnificent things through you. That he can bear fruit for him, for his glory, through you. That we can have true purpose in life as we live this way with him. So let me pray for you. And if that's something... If you're that person, I just ask that you'd come. Come get a hug. Come, let's talk about it. That's the invitation he asks us to come. Come to him. To lay it down. To accept his gift. His life for our life. Let's pray. Jesus What an awesome thing that we have a God that sees us, that knows what we are, but yet still desires us. That it makes no sense that what you would see that would be such great worth that you would give your life for. Help us to believe that. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember right now that moment in the lives of those here, that individual moment where we gave our lives to you, where we made you our king. Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here that never has, that may have a religious background, they may be morally superior to anyone else here. But Jesus, you say, Without a living relationship with you, there is no hope. I pray for that person, that they would come into your hope, that they would believe that you've defeated death, that they would believe that you've done all things for salvation, that they would put their trust in you at this moment, that they would give their lives, that they would recognize you as king, that they would walk anew, and that you would do a magnificent thing through them.
Jesus, help us not forget what you've done for us. Help us not forget that apart from you, we can do nothing. Jesus, I pray that you would do a magnificent thing through the people in this room, God. That we would dwell in you deeply. That we would trust in you. That we would receive our goodness from you. And that we would go and impact the world we're around us. That, that we would be Jesus to the people that you've placed us around. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.